Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance. I coach people online and a faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute. Hi, I'm uh, Jorn Trommela. I'm a PhD student in muscle metabolism and sports nutrition. Excellent. Uh, we will get to Yorn in just a moment. We have a little bit of listener mail uh, and news, and I think the news is sort of topical. And then we'll get to Yorn's origin story. Uh, first, I wanted to share something uh, that Rob forwarded me from Steve, and just to sort of put it out there, but he says, Hey, Robert, I recently self-published a book called 25 Years of Lifting. He said it took him nearly four years to complete it. Uh, but it talks about how uh, essentially lifting got him through some pretty tough times. Uh, he talks about the confidence uh, that he feels lifting can give you, uh, the outlet that it provided, the different paths that it took him down. So it could be a good read. Try Googling 25 years of lifting uh, from Steve Foxall. And we'll, um, we'll you know, receive nice. some feedback. Yeah, it'd be cool. Could be cool. I have not looked at the book yet. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Steve. Uh, this next one, I apologize if I mentioned this in the past, but I dug a little deeper this week in any case. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, a paper came out, and this was circulated in Science Daily, uh, just one of the, the news feeds that I get, but Salty Diet Makes You Hungry, Not Thirsty is the title. New studies show that salty food diminishes thirst while increasing hunger due to a higher need mm. for energy. So um, in the, the journalist blurb, it says cosmonauts who ate more salt retained more water and they weren't as thirsty, uh, but they needed more calories, more energy. Um, they go on to mention the study saying the researchers' conclusions that appeared in the Journal of Clinical Investigation uh, were published in two papers. And as I just pan through some of what the journalist said, uh, the project revises scientists' view of the function of urea in the body. Uh, quote, it's not solely a waste product as had been assumed, Professor Friedrich Luft says. Instead, it turns out to be a very important osmolite, a compound that binds to water and helps transport it. Uh, he went on to say, we didn't directly assess blood pressure or other aspects of the cardiovascular system. They were more interested in... Um, I think inter-organ nitrogen um, flux and in hunger and things of that nature. Uh, let me just quickly read you portions of the actual paper. This is from one of the two papers in the Journal of Clinical Investigation um, from Kitada and colleagues. High salt intake reprioritizes osmolite and energy metabolism for fluid conservation. So what they didn't mention in this study uh, the journalist, that is, are some of the sections of this paper uh, that talk about muscle loss. So here's one paragraph in particular. Salt leads to catabolic 
muscle mass loss. Uh, they were testing uh, the hypothesis that salt-driven urea generation. And again, the idea I think is um, the water flux in the body, it's not as simple as just maybe electrolyte flux and you know the general osmotic pull on water, but that urea plays an important role in that you start to catabolize muscle uh, to pr provide substrate for urea generation in your liver. And mm. uh, some of our listeners know the urea cycle is very energy demanding. And so then that leads to the second part, which is four weeks of ad libitum feeding, followed by two weeks of pear feeding revealed that in the ab ad libitum group, the high salt mice showed a 20 to 30% increase in food intake. In other words, they're eating more, presumably to help fuel that energy costly urea cycle. Uh, now, to lifters and physique athletes, this doesn't sound very exciting, right? Muscle mass loss, and then you're going to be hungrier. Given the option to eat as you will, you're going to eat 20 or 30% more. So, um, yeah, not, not something that most of our listenership is going to be excited to do, right? Is lose muscle tissue and get hungry all the time. So, um, interesting stuff. Again, check out those authors if you want, if you want to dig a little bit uh, more deeply. Uh, I just find it also interesting just because blood urea nitrogen and total urea nitrogen is something that I've analyzed in the past. Um, it's often looked at as a waste product or even a marker of poor kidney function by clinicians. And this is just putting it in new light. So take home message, I guess, is, um, and again, this is extrapolating and painting with a broad brush, but high salt diets may actually lead to muscle loss and make you hungrier. Um, doesn't sound very exciting. So now all the, if it fits your macro guys are going to be massively upset. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Um, this next one, uh, I think, will set up part of our discussion. And thanks for bearing with me, Jorn. Um, this is from Journal of Cachexia and Sarcopenia and Muscle, 2017. Dietary protein content for an optimal diet, a clinical view. Uh, from Santarpia, Santarpia and colleagues. Um, so this is brand spanking new. It says the dietary protein role in different clinical nutrition conditions and some physiopathological perspectives is a current and hot topic. Uh, recent proceedings, now they say recent, but this is most of the buzz about this was from 2013 to 2015, but that's still not old. Uh, recent proceedings from the Protein Summit 2, uh, joining more than 60 nutrition scientists, health experts, and nutrition educators suggest to increase plant, but in particular animal protein because of its richer leucine content. And what these authors are talking about in this new uh, review paper is this protein summit that took place and how it's really in contrast, in, in even contradiction to what most health authorities say, right? So they actually, they point out the apparent contradiction with different nutritional ecology statements that usually push for more plant proteins. So it's, it's interesting that the protein physiologists are, are pushing more animal proteins, right, where usually dietitians or people that are interested in sustainability are, they tend not to push the animal proteins. So uh, I can point people to that. There is a, a paper and it's free that you can, you can reach online through the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition through, Nan uh, it's Nancy Rod Rodriguez made the report. Um, and it's the introduction to the Protein Summit 2. 
And again, the kind of things they explored there were weight management, metabolic activity, the effect on renal and bone health, which is something I've looked at myself a little bit. Um, but there's plenty uh, to find if you look, look up these authors and these journals. And again, I'm not sure our listenership all fully appreciate or even are aware that there are these protein summits that go on. And you can see prominent researchers like Don Lehman and Stu Phillips. Um, and they're helping to decide, right, or even push the Institute of Medicine to change uh, the RDA from the 0 0.8 grams per kg that a lot of our listeners eat per meal probably um, as a daily marker, of course, um, to something that's more, 1.0 or 1.2 grams per kg. So there's this ongoing push, I think, for metabolic health for higher protein diets. So again, there is this protein summit that happens every several years, maybe every 10, and there's only been two. I think it was 05 and 2015, maybe. Um, uh, something along those lines. So interesting stuff that there is this push from people, um, including people like Stu, who both resistance trains and, of course, publishes like crazy in that, in that area. So uh, cool stuff. Yeah, I just had one super quick one here from the Scandinavian Journal of MedSci. This is from March of 2017. Uh, increased insulin-stimulated glucose uptake in both leg and arm muscles after sprint interval and moderate-intensity training in subjects with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes. What I thought was interesting about this is that it is in a diseased population, and what they did is they compared the effects of sprint interval training and moderate interval training, looking at both glucose and uh, fatty acid use. Uh, they enrolled average age about 49. It's like most of them were, were women. For the sprint training, they used four by six by 30. So four to six bouts of 30 seconds of all out cycling. So almost kind of like a Wingate type protocol. And then the moderate group just did 40 to 60 minutes cycling at 60% of VO2 peak. What was cool about it from a mechanistic standpoint is they used a PET scan. They used all sorts of other stuff. They did an insulin clamp. They measured fatty acid use. And at the end of all of that, what they found within the training, even in both groups in a pretty short period of time, I think it was within two weeks, uh, they found that both the interval and the moderate intensity cardio improved insulin stimulated glucose uptake in the whole body. And then they looked at thigh and arm as well. So fatty acid uptake was increased there and also in the main working muscle, which is one of the quadriceps. Um, so I thought it was pretty cool. They said that these findings highlight the underused potential of exercise in rapidly restoring the impaired skeletal muscle metabolism and subjects with impaired glucose metabolism. Hmm. Good stuff. Yeah, nothing earth-shattering, but I thought from a mechanistic standpoint, they were very thorough and went through everything. And even in a diseased population within a short period of time, it didn't take that much exercise to see a pretty profound difference. Right, yeah. Mechanisms and refining, something that, yeah, a lot of people are, I think, uh, clinicians are aware of. But it's, yeah. it's good to know how that works in the time frames and the, the necessary dose of exercise and whatnot, you know. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Okay, Yorn, you're up, sir. Um, let's let's start with your your background story, going back as far as you want about why you do what you do. Okay, so when I was a teenager, I uh, started going to the gym, and uh, I did what all the teenagers do. I uh, I walked straight to the biggest guy in the gym and asked him how he got so big, mm -hmm. and. Uh, 
he said like, yeah, I see you train, um, but how's your nutrition? And I was like, what? And it's funny now, but uh, I had literally no clue that nutrition was important for your for your gym progress, basically. So uh, I started getting online, started uh, looking up some information. And back then, you didn't have like 500 uh, YouTubers or uh, bloggers. So it was mostly message boards back then. Mm. And started uh, reading. And I, I remember the first time I saw... Uh, a scientific abstract posted and I basically asked what is that what it just seemed like a weirdly formatted piece of text to me so the guy said yeah it's basically a, a summary of uh, a scientific publication so that got yeah my interest oh hmm, maybe I should look what science has to say on this topic so eventually I uh, went to college and did a bachelor and a master degree in uh, nutrition science um, but I, towards the end of my master degree, I wasn't really satisfied because like, it's not that hard to get the main points out of a paper. Um, like if you're lucky, you, you read the abstract uh, and you see a clear uh, conclusion. Uh, for example, whey is more anabolic than casein protein. Um, if, you, if you're actually going to read the paper, you look at the introduction and discussion, you actually get most most of the information out of the paper. But then when you start reading the, the methods, then to be fair, I, I had to skip most parts of it um, because you simply don't know all the research methodology as a student. Sure. So at that time, fitness community online started growing and... Uh, People start debating what good and bad studies were. So I, I really wanted to understand science better. And therefore, I uh, wanted to do uh, a PhD and actually use the methods and yeah, really know the ins and the outs. Um, so that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years, a PhD in uh, muscle metabolism, uh, mostly focused on uh, either protein intake to augment muscle mass gains or a carbohydrate intake. Um, to improve performance in endurance athletes. And uh, yeah, I'm now more or less finishing up my PhD. Um, but uh, yeah, I got a decent understanding of the methodologies now, but now I'm just addicted to the science part because um, yeah, once you really start working in the field, uh, you know, okay, study A, B and C have been done. So now it's obvious that we need to do study D so we get even bigger, even stronger, even faster. So, uh, yeah, I'm now just, uh, I'm just trying to figure out how, uh, how we can do as many cool studies and uh, get people as strong and uh, freaky uh, big as possible. You know, that's, that's fun, your origin. Mine was very similar. I, I actually discovered that the second floor of the local university library, which was Kent State, were science journals. And very much like you, I was like, what are, what are these? And I, of course, you can only piece me a lot of the, the equipment, uh, the methodology, the statistics, you kind of, you, you do what you can to understand it, but you really don't, you know, but you can sort of go to the conclusion sentences at the bottom. But I felt like I had stumbled on some secret gold mine, you know, that other people weren't aware of. You know, and if you could, if you could only understand, like the way you put it, Jorn, that the format of an abstract, and then that you know the the how science writing through a manuscript, it's it's very it's very systematic. But 
it, it's incredibly valuable. This whole idea that other people are checking it, not for a, their, their opinion or just a simple editor's fact check, but you know, the whole peer review process and w was the research good? Was it valid? You know, are their conclusions correct? And I, I ate that up. And it is funny how you then progress from, you know, I just wanted, I was in martial arts and I was lifting at the time. And, um, but then you progress to, do you get hooked on the science? Like you said, you know, uh, just the underlying methods and whatnot. I don't know. The thing was, was that when I started reading online, um, it was just so frustrating that you had 2,000 people saying that you need to do a low-carb diet, and then you had <laughs> 5,000 people saying, no, all that matters is calories, and then you had another guy with another opinion, and then someone else said, no, it's just the hormones. And um, basically, if you're not a scientist, it's very easy to become more confused uh, with what's available on the internet than, than to really know uh, what's correct. So science to me was like, yeah, the, the, the antidote, like, okay, this is something I can put my faith in. It probably doesn't have all the answers, um, but it's a lot more objective than just what the biggest guy says. Right, right. In the mid-90s, too, like, there wasn't as much science, I would say, even available to people in the fitness communities. Like you said, you didn't see a lot of people even referencing anything, you know. It was even more just this person versus that person's opinion. Yeah. Yeah. How did you come to science, Mike, early on? Was it was it through lifting or was it more academic in the beginning? Uh, it was basically kind of both. So I started lifting. So I was the six foot three hundred and fifty six pound kid in college. So I had passed all my growth spurt and <laughs> and everything else. And I was all excited because I was going to take a college weightlifting class. And, you know, kind of like an idiot, I thought, well, He's going to teach us the right technique, and we're going to learn something about the science and where these techniques came from and all this stuff. And he showed up the first day. He took roll, and he looked around, and he goes, eh, some of you probably are here to lose weight. Some of you, holy crap, especially you, he points at me, need to gain weight. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> and then he disappeared, and we never saw him the rest of the class. So I was like, what? So I went over to the anatomy and physiology department then of my undergrad, and so I just started taking, you know, classes on anatomy and physiology because they actually could use cadavers there and and things of that nature. And I was like, oh, my gosh, well, this is this is actually you get to look at the actual muscles and learn how they work. And um, yeah, so similar process, but kind of a little bit more through the anatomy and physiology side. Right. Well, let me ask your um, what about your training? How's your training evolved? Did you ever decide to compete in anything? Was it just a personal journey? Well, I, I started before lifting. I, uh, I was also in uh, martial arts, uh, judo, mm -hmm. and I was fairly technical, but I was as ectomorph as you can imagine, probably even worse than Mike. <laughs> uh, That's saying a lot. <laughs> so, so my father, at some point, he mentioned to me, like, every, every contest, uh, you're larger or at least taller than all your opponents together. And um, that's basically the worst leverage you can have in judo, where you want a low uh, center of gravity. So, but then, like that, when he said that, I realized I was skinny. I was like, God damn. <laughs> so that's when I uh, started getting into lifting. Uh, well, again, also for lifting, uh, I had horrible genetics, which is both uh, uh, frustrating, but also uh, a blessing because. Um, because I realized very early on, because when, you, when you're young, you train exactly the same as your, uh, 
as your lifting partners because well there's really no no plan behind what you do anyway um, but even though we did everything the same they progress much faster so that was probably the driver like yeah again like i knew nothing ab about biology in general so i was like okay i'm screwing something up uh, let me research what's wrong i'm probably not eating correct as that guy says mm -hmm. so because i always had a tough time yeah as an athlete basically uh, that was basically the, the driver for me to try to learn uh, more. Right. Okay. Okay, I'll tell you what. We are just about up for uh, our mid-show break. So let's do that. When we come back, Dr. Nelson will lead us through a, a discussion on um, Jorn's uh, research uh, across a, a couple of different topics. Pro I'm guessing focusing mostly on protein. So we'll be right back. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hey, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here on Iron Radio with Dr. Lonnie Lowry and Jorn Tromelin. And we're talking about the topic of the day, which is focused on protein. And one of the very interesting things I've read is some studies that you've been doing over there on pre-sleep protein. So if people have been 
reading sort of bodybuilding magazines for a while. This is something that's been touted for quite some time, but the effects of protein before sleep hasn't really been investigated, I would say, all that well up until recently. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into that and what you found? Yeah, so um, one of the critiques that a lot of the uh, protein research has uh, gotten over the last one or two decades, I would say, is that why do you guys always do the research in an overnight fasted state? Because that's just not really how people train in reality. And just from a scientific uh, point of view, it's the, the best isolated uh, condition because if if none of the subjects has eaten anything and they have been sleeping the, the uh, hours before the experiment, then really the only difference is the experiment. But people are right, it's not necessarily the most uh, real-life situation there is. So then we decided to uh, measure muscle protein synthesis rates, which is basically the the underlying progress uh, process of uh, muscle growth um, during uh, yeah more more ecological ecological valid conditions. So what we did was after a uh, at least in the Netherlands, I'm not sure how it is in all different cultures, but most people uh, work between nine to five or go to college, for example, and then they have a dinner uh, around six in the evening, and uh, maybe an hour after that they go to the gym. So we wanted to measure muscle protein synthesis rates uh, during such a uh, such a day, and what we found um, was that even when subjects ate quite a bit of protein during the day and did exercise uh, in the evening, uh, overnight muscle protein synthesis rates were uh, actually surprisingly low. Uh, they even appeared to be lower than in a normal uh, overnight fasted condition, and mm. that's basically how uh, how we got started. So we really saw. If muscle protein synthesis rates are that low during the night, then um, it's, it's really a window of opportunity to to boost uh, yeah your 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 total rates of muscle protein synthesis during a 24-hour period. So um, with a normal uh, dietary pattern, most people will have a positive muscle protein balance during most of the waking hours. But then because the night is the longest uh, period where you don't really eat. That's yeah the biggest period where uh, where you're in a catabolic condition, so that's why we started to do uh, starting to investigate whether an additional protein meal uh, just prior to sleep might help overnight recovery. Oh, that's very cool. What was the initial reason? Do you think that it was actually initially before you did any intervention low? Because I would have, I guess that's kind of surprising. I would have not have guessed that. Yeah, so we, we simply think uh, because we also measured uh, the amino acids in uh, the blood and um, those those levels were just very low. And basically, so uh, a popular theory uh, has always been that during the night, actually, anab anabolism is much greater because you have the release of all kinds of anabolic hormones, uh, such as growth hormone, for example. So in theory, you have like the perfect environment for muscle growth, especially because, yeah, you're simply laying down, you're not using your muscles so they can, they don't get any damage. So they only have to focus on recovery and growth, basically. But if you don't have any amino acids, you don't have any building blocks for muscle growth. So uh, we, yeah, it's simply a lack of substrate for muscle growth. At least that's what we speculated. And 
then the obvious uh, intervention would be let's provide some additional protein so people have building blocks for muscle growth. Gotcha. And I think you used a special type of protein. I've heard uh, Dr. Van Loon talk about this where they were trying to get more of a, a labeled protein than I think process took i think you said something like three to four years or longer do you want to explain a little bit about that yeah so um to measure muscle protein synthesis rates you basically have to differentiate between uh, the protein um uh well let, let's start a little bit simpler normally when you take a muscle biopsy um all you see is a bit a bunch of muscle protein but you don't really know um where those amino acids in the muscle, were they there uh, for a long time or was this muscle just built uh, in an, an hour ago? So for that, you need uh, a label. So we call that uh, a tracer. I always describe it as a, we can put a molecular signature on a protein and it does exactly the same thing as a normal protein, except it, yeah, it just keeps that signature. So if I would take a muscle biopsy now, uh, from a subject, um, I, I would see a lot of amino acids, but none of them would have that tracer, that signature on them. Then I would uh, can give them uh, that special type of protein, and a few hours later, I can take a second biopsy, and then you see that quite a few of those amino acids with that signature are built into uh, muscle proteins. So you really are what you eat. Um, because you have, yeah, just a couple hours after a protein drink, uh, the amino acids from that protein will be built in actual muscle that can contract. And then that the process to do it is just, uh, yeah, quite expensive and a lot of work. So you uh, infuse those special molecular signatures first into cows. And then uh, the cows, all the proteins in the body from the cow will uh, contain that molecular signature but the cow will also produce milk and milk of course also contains protein so also all the proteins in his milk will contain that signature um, so yeah we literally milked the cow uh, we, we had shirts with milk it for what it's worth <laughs> which was fun and uh, especially because the milk is like probably 10,000 times more expensive oh, yeah. than normal uh, and um, so from that milk, we could make uh, protein supplements, just how the, the companies also do it. And um, from those, then those protein supplements would have that special tracer in it. And uh, we could use those to measure, uh, well, regular muscle protein synthesis, but also what we call de novo muscle protein synthesis, which is basically how much of the protein you just eat a couple hours ago ends up in the muscle. And as far as I'm aware, I think that's the, what I loved about that method is it's one of the more most direct methods because you're actually going one step further than what some other labs do. Instead of, you know, putting in a tracer at the same time, you're actually putting it into the protein itself. So it's because one of the complaints with a lot of some of the studies is that their, their real world validity isn't very much, but now you actually have the absorption of the protein in the stomach and the breakdown into amino acids and going through the body and then showing up in the muscle and then actually measuring the muscle again. So it's a pretty, in my opinion, elegant way of trying to figure out more exactly what's actually going on. It does make sense. I mean, in the past, we did a little bit of N15, right? Labeled like yeah. constant priming infusions. 
and then it just makes a lot more sense to make the meat in the milk itself labeled, you know, instead of trying to uh, do it with this additional step, I guess, you know, so that's cool. For listeners, do you have a, a rough number of, so if I take in, let's say, 40 grams of this labeled protein, how much of that actually ends up as muscle tissue? Because we all know that, you know, if you're eating, you know, hundreds of grams of protein a day, you're doing everything else right, you're lifting, you're sleeping, you're recovering, you know, if you're, you know, more of a natural athlete, you're you're not probably going to gain much more than maybe 8 to 10 pounds of lean mass, I'd say, on the probably higher end. So it's definitely a low number compared to the, you know, pounds of protein that you consume. Yeah, so the like you mentioned with that uh, label in the protein, you, you're not only measuring the, um, the muscle uh, protein synthesis, but you can also uh, track all the processes that happen before it. So how much of yeah. it is digested, how much is uh, absorbed. And one of the things we see is that um, the more protein you eat, you absorb a little bit less of it. Um, one common myth is that you can only absorb like 30 grams of protein uh, per meal or something weird like that. Um, that's complete nonsense. Um, but you do see that the, the absorption uh, becomes a little bit lower. Um, probably the absorption is the, the total uh, amino acid absorption is probably still somewhere up in the 90s, 90%. Um, it just takes longer for the protein to be entirely digested. Mm. Um, but what we typically see is that um, if we give like 20 grams of casein protein, then in the next five hours or so, about 50% of those amino acids uh, are absorbed and appear into the circulation. Um, that might sound very low, but... Uh, almost all the other amino acids are um, basically used by gut tissue. So we don't see them in the blood, but that's simply because other tissues uh, already use them before uh, the amino acids can be absorbed into the blood. Um, so yeah, almost all protein is used for something, but not necessarily will appear in the blood. And then the same thing happens um, from those amino acids that appear into the blood, approximately 20% um, makes it uh, to the muscle um, because, again, other tissues will also absorb the uh, amino acids. So we see that, again, it depends on, on the dose, but from a 20-gram uh, protein dose, ab approximately 10% of the amino acids appear uh, in the muscle in the next five hours. Um, but that's in a rested state. If you do exercise, um, we clearly see that much more of the amino acids make it to the muscle. So um, that basically, if if you exercise, your your muscle screams to the rest of your body, okay, I, I'm I'm hungry. Give pass all those amino acids to me. So I don't think there's a set uh, number. It really depends in uh, on the stage you're in. So if you're training very progressively, probably relatively a lot of the amino acids make it to the muscle. But if you're more or less at a plateau, um, yeah, that not a whole lot of amino acids will make it into the muscle. Gotcha. And is there any estimates on with exercise about how much of that? I know it's probably a huge range, but is it you know like twice as much, or is there any rough guesstimations on that? Um, yeah, I know we ran a study on it. I can look it up real quick if you want. 
I think we did it in elderly subjects. So one one of the things in uh, protein metabolism is that most research is funded more for uh, older adults. Um, yeah. Because well. Well, we think that muscles are very important for us. Uh, the government doesn't really think so. They uh, they are more uh, interested in more clinical populations or the aging populations. So unfortunately, this guy has published way too much. So I have to uh, check through his. Uh... <laughs> yeah, because I'm always surprised at how little of that actually is. And this is a very cool way of seeing what actually goes on. And I also believe that I think the oxidation rate kind of scales with protein intake pretty close unless you get really low <clears throat> because people always, I think, get worried about, oh, my gosh, I took 40 grams of, of protein and half of it's being oxidized because they sort of myopically think that their little muscles are the only thing that are using protein in their body. And like you said, a lot of it's being pulled out by the gut. A lot of it, some it's being burned a little bit for energy and, and things of that nature, too. So it's not... Muscle is not the, the only thing that's using protein in the body. Right. And, you know, I'm grateful for Jorn to, again, debunk that myth about that 30 grams. You can only digest yeah. 30 at a time. It just won't go away, you know, no matter how many scientists <laughs> we have talk about it. Uh, yeah, just not the yeah. case. Yeah. So so the, the clear thing of that myth is typically that you see that the statement, you can only use X right. grams per X amount. And then you already know as, as a scientist, like they don't know what they're talking about because use doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Because if you if like if you wouldn't absorb is it does it mean your muscle cannot use it or it's not absorbed? Because I've never seen anyone who um yeah, excuse my language, but pooped out a steak for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, right. Like you don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that you absorb um most of it. So to come back real quick to the oxidation that uh, Mike uh, mentioned, um, yeah. So so some people think that oxidation, protein oxidation, is necessarily a bad thing because well, you're wasting your protein, you're burning it for energy. <laughs> but uh, keep in mind um, that you only so protein basically has two functions in the body. One is to be a brick for muscle growth, but it's also a signal for muscle growth. And the brick function is. Not usually, at least in, in lifters who are somewhat focused on their nutrition, not a limiting factor. Because like you mentioned, if you would only, uh, if 20% of all the protein you eat every day would end up in your muscle, we would all be Ronnie Coleman in no time. <laughs> so we need more protein than we will actually deposit in our muscles to uh, basically signal anabolism to our uh, body. So I have no problem with uh, amino acids appearing in the circulation triggering muscle protein synthesis because that's what I want them to do and then being oxidized because I don't need all of them as a brick. Yeah. And also to come back to the question, um, the exercise seems to uh, improve uh, the deposition of uh, amino acids by approximately 15%, which is okay. lower than I would have uh, guessed. But yeah, keep in mind, that is just the deposition of the protein you just eat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it will also improve the recycling of uh, protein. So the amino acids from uh, protein breakdown in the body, you also become more efficient at taking those up again and reusing them. Right. Hey, before we move on, it, it, I can't. 
let this call come and go without asking because Yorn, you'd be the person to ask. But there used to be a debate in clinical nutrition about the necessity of gut rest or metabolic rest. In other words, do we, in your opinion, do we need those nighttime hours of reduced protein synthesis or, or catabolism to sort of reset in a diurnal way the body to grow then the next day? Or is it smarter to say, no, that's always, that's always a negative. Maybe we should, you know, set our alarm clocks for 1 a.m. and drink some uh, whey casing blend or something like that. Do we need that nighttime um, downward, you know, that nadir so then we can grow better the next day? Or is that not necessary? Um, well, we, we basically did, uh, did a study that more or less uh, investigates that specific question. So what we did is, we again, we had uh, subjects uh, eat their normal protein during the day. And then we give them an additional 80 gram of supplemental protein uh, in the evening and prior to sleep. So they, yeah, they got much more protein than they were used to. And then we measured muscle protein synthesis rates the next day, um, both in a fasted state and also in response to breakfast. So in response to protein in the morning. Uh, and then we did those two situations, both when they had exercised the day before and also when they didn't exercise the day before. So basically in every situation we could think of. And there were absolutely no differences in muscle protein synthesis rates the next day. So that study basically shows you that what you do the previous day doesn't impact the, the next day. There's no compensatory uh, response or anything. So in theory, uh, if you eat uh, pre-sleep protein, it increases overnight muscle protein synthesis rates. We did that study. We know there's no compensatory response the next day. So in theory, the, the increased overnight muscle protein synthesis rates are fully additive to mm. what you're already eating during the day. Uh, and of course, what's the way to test that? Well, that's to simply do a long-term study, which is uh, what we did. So there was a 12-week training study where subjects trained resistance exercise three times per week. And then one group uh, got a protein supplement prior to sleep. Uh, and the other one simply a placebo and you saw that the uh, pre-sleep uh, group uh, gained more muscle mass wow okay so, yeah just to come back to your question uh no i think that more protein is better and uh that there's at least for an athlete i would definitely try to avoid being in that fasted state okay there's, so for 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 muscle anabolism uh, that's only downside right so for our lifters for our listeners then let's say they routinely wake up in the middle of the night to to go pee um would it behoove them to have a small i don't um protein drink next to their bed stand and just slam it back before they went back to sleep yeah i, I would still love to do that study because it's like the ultimate <laughs> gross study that i <laughs> thought about like years ago mm -hmm. um it's it's difficult to say so um What's really interesting is that uh, during the day, uh, a variety of protein dose response studies have been done, and it appears that you need approximately 20 grams of protein to more or less optimize muscle protein synthesis for the next four, maybe five hours. Um, we have some research that suggests that you need more pre-sleep protein um, 
to optimize overnight muscle protein synthesis rates, um, and which is likely simply because the overnight period is much longer. So as you're suggesting, um, maybe instead of eating a whole lot of protein prior to sleep, maybe you can um, divide it in two boluses. So one prior to sleep and then get another big peak somewhere uh, during midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess would be that yes, that would, uh, would be beneficial. But um, there's a lot of research that suggests that uh, uh, just a few interruptions in sleep is as bad as missing like two, three hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely not something where I would set my alarm clock for. Um, but if you wake up and you have a few amino acids in uh, in a shaker, that, yeah, I, I don't think you have anything to lose there, only to gain. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I actually did that experiment several years ago when I was trying as hard as I could to just gain as much mass as possible. So I, I set my alarm for like three in the morning and I had a little insulated container. I put ice and protein and I don't remember why, but I actually put a, like a tablespoon of canola oil in there at one point because I thought maybe that'll slow down the absorption or whatever. <laughs> and I did that for I think a couple months, and again, an N of one with you know a huge amount of variables and all that kind of stuff, but uh, didn't really help me much at all. I found that my recovery was actually more impaired, and I my guess again, there's not much research on this, is that probably waking up in the middle of the night because I actually did physically set an alarm. I didn't wake up. You know, and at the time, I didn't think anything about lights. I'd wander into my bathroom and turn the light on, and you know, not not the best controlled study, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, the last time that I competed, I I actually did that. I routinely get up uh, right about the middle of the night, so I would drink a casein drink before I went to sleep, and that would essentially cause me to have to pee halfway through the night anyway. So I would just leave a little bit by my end stand, and like you said, this is. There's, this is completely not controlled or anything else, but um, I did compete larger than I had in the past because I did that for uh, the whole 24 weeks prior to a competition. And oh, so, nice. yeah, my personal experience was maybe there's something here, but I always wanted to, I always wanted something a little more controlled and scientific, you know. So, yeah, I appreciate that that input. Yeah. So the big question would be is if you just eat a very large amount of a slowly digesting protein or maybe add even some other nutrients which may slow down nutrition as mike suggested um, would that be able to do the same Um, it's difficult to say because uh, we know that whey for example is a little bit more anabolic than casein because it can produce uh, yeah a big spike in plasma leucine which is one of the main triggers for muscle protein synthesis so in theory, two big peaks of protein prior to sleep and during midnight may be more anabolic than just one uh, moderate increase in plasma amino acids, which you, what you would have with a slowly digesting protein. Could you do something like that with putting like three to five grams of freeform leucine in your casein drink before bed to try to purposely spike leucine super high to kind of kickstart that process? Yeah, I, uh, I currently have a study under uh, review, which more or less did that. So in our in our uh, previous studies, we gave quite large amounts of protein because we anticipated that you would need more um, before sleep, simply because it's such a long period. Um, 
well, those high doses were effective. So now we're trying to reduce the dose to make it a little bit more practical for uh, well, average people because not everyone is uh, is a competing bodybuilder that's willing to uh, <laughs> set their alarm clock. Right. And one one way to do that uh, might be to compensate for the lower amount by increasing the leucine content. Um, because just a few grams of leucine, uh, like you suggest, uh, can uh, can restore the uh, the anabolic effect of a, a small amount of protein. But um, yeah, in my study that didn't really seem to work. And my mm-hmm. guess is because um, what what the thing is, so uh, uh, free leucine more or less represents what whey protein would do. So you see a rapid increase in muscle protein synthesis rates. But it also goes down relatively quick again because it's uh, it disappears from the circulation quite fast. And um, when you measure muscle protein synthesis rates um, just in a couple of hours after leucine uh, co-ingestion, you see it effectively increases muscle protein synthesis rates. But then, there, like if you have two hours of increased anabolism because of the leucine, um, compared to the eight hours that you're sleeping, that's too little. So. Yeah. I think that would work, but you would yeah, either wake up in the night and do it again or make like a time release leucine. Um, but just a little bit of leucine at the beginning of the night doesn't seem uh, enough to uh, increase overnight muscle protein synthesis rates. Hmm. And I think that because a lot of the people I know who have read your study are like, oh, so see, we need casein specifically at night and that's why they studied casein. But as you mentioned earlier, it was the fact that you're trying to get it from the actual cows that are labeled and that most of the protein you're going to extract from them is a, a casein protein because the whey constitute is much less, correct? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, So uh, from, uh, from the milk protein, uh, about 80% is casein, um, which means in practice that for every uh, study we use weigh in we have four studies we can use casein and and that's really the only reason (laughs) (laughs) what what is fun though is that in the netherlands i I don't think they have it in the us but we have uh it's called quark it's basically a very low fat yogurt oh Um, yeah i've seen that over there yeah yeah and and it has like 10 percent of 10 grams uh protein per 100 gram and like literally uh even when I was in college, when my colleagues didn't even start all the priestly protein, like everyone in the Netherlands, all the gym bros ate the quark. So it's really funny that everyone in the Netherlands says like, dude, you're catching up. And the rest of the world is like, oh, that's really smart. Of course, the next meal. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in the Netherlands, casein, we all think that's that's the way to go. Um, but in my opinion, any high quality animal based protein would probably be effective. Like we all know that if you if you eat a sufficient amount of meat, a uh, few hours later you're still having uh, burps where you're d- digesting it. So meat can also uh, increase plasma amino acids during most of the night. Right. Hey, I have a oh. I have a question that's just burning. Um, uh, one of you two had mentioned this in some of the email exchanges before, but Jorn, can you? Uh, educate us on the role of hormones. Like, for example, we know that bodybuilders will, um, with polypharmacy, you know, take combinations of hormones, including insulin. Uh, can you sort of shed some light on the role of insulin in either building or preserving muscle tissue? Yes. Yeah, so, um, 
Again, one of the, the things I uh, used to read a lot uh, on the forums back in the day was that insulin is the most anabolic hormone. Um, so uh, I wrote a systematic review on that topic uh, when I was a master's student. And um, so how is insulin even supposed to help uh, build muscle mass? Well, there's basically two mechanisms. So the first one is just direct. It basically triggers uh, a receptor in the muscle cell, uh, triggers the molecular uh, pathway of uh, muscle protein synthesis, so the mTOR pathway. Uh, and so it yeah, really directly should stimulate muscle growth. And then the second pathway is indirect because uh, insulin um, increases uh, blood flow and also increases so it would also increase blood flow to the muscle. So in theory, uh, more nutrients and other hormones could reach muscle tissue. Um, so I started looking at all the literature and what I basically found was that it was 50-50, the studies that uh, claimed that leucine was indeed uh, anabolic and studies that said, no, it does absolutely nothing for the muscle. So um, I was trying to figure out there must be something why it works sometimes, but it doesn't work other times. So I basically started putting all systems in different categories. And I found a few conditions in which insulin indeed uh, was anabolic. So uh, the first one is when you infuse insulin locally. So what, what we can do in a study is infuse insulin. Um, and then, for example, in the lag, and then only in that lag, insulin concentrations will be elevated, but not in the rest of the body. And uh, indeed, insulin is anabolic in that condition. And the reason is, uh, but it's not when you uh, infuse insulin in the systemic circulation. And the reason is that insulin uh, lowers plasma amino acids. And as we already discussed, plasma amino acids uh, trigger muscle protein synthesis. So if you infuse insulin systemically, um, you lower your plasma amino acids, and again, you don't have any bricks. So even if it would try to tell the muscle, please grow, if you don't have the, the bricks, nothing is going to happen. But when you infuse insulin locally, so only in one leg, then the insulin can tell the muscle in that leg, okay, let's start growing. And um, blood from the rest of your body that's still rich in uh, amino acids will flow to the muscle. So you have the the high blood flow with essential amino acids and the, the insulin directly in that organ telling the muscle to grow. So it works in that condition, but that's of course a totally artificial condition that uh, never happens with a meal, for example. So what would be most relevant for us is um, if you eat a protein-rich meal and you eat carbohydrates on top of that, does that further increase muscle anabolism? Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't. So yeah. you simply don't need insulin to improve muscle protein synthesis rates. However, as you mentioned, um, um, competing bodybuilders uh, use pharmacological means uh, to grow. And insulin at supraphysiological levels, so levels that are like, I, I forgot how much, but I'm pretty sure it was like 5,000 times higher than what your body can naturally produce. Uh, under those conditions, insulin is anabolic. So what the bodybuilders are using is probably effective, 
but um, yeah, it is extremely dangerous. So it's not necessarily something I would recommend. Um, but yeah, I guess the take-home message here is that under any physiological conditions with normal food, uh, insulin does absolutely nothing. Um, but if you inject it the way bodybuilders uh, do, then it probably works. And then yeah, for people, it's all, always difficult to uh, to wrap their heads around. Like if you inject it, then it works, then every little bit must work, right? But it's, it's kind of like, it's like a switch, right? It, it does nothing unless you reach like a critical concentration that it's like infinite times higher than your body can produce. So uh, yeah, just physiological con uh, concentrations do really little for muscle protein synthesis. However, insulin does inhibit muscle protein breakdown. Um, but again, that's not really that useful for us because um, you actually hardly need any insulin for the maximal effect, the maximal reduction of muscle protein breakdown. Basically, anytime you're not fasted, you will have sufficient uh, insulin concentration to maximally inhibit muscle protein breakdown. So if you just take one protein shake, that alone will trigger enough insulin release to fully inhibit muscle protein breakdown. So yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't see a whole lot of uh, necessity to focus on uh, insulin as, uh, as a bodybuilder, unless you're willing to use super physiological doses. Okay. Yeah, thank you. I know Stu Phillips had done a, a study using whey protein and similar conclusion, right? That by the fact that you had the whey protein, you stimulate enough insulin to get whatever the maximal amount of benefit was. And from an insulin perspective of adding a, a crap ton of carbohydrates to that wasn't any more additive effect, again, from an insulin mechanism. Right. You know, from a clinical perspective, I often tell students this story. We had a, we had a young man. We were back in the early 90s. We were just comparing just you know, muscle gains, body weight, and, and we did some body composition. We, we were looking at whey versus casein versus soy and a, a maltodextrin for a control. And one, but regardless of the study, a, a, a young man came in, and about a, a month before the study, he registered and he signed the, the IRB paperwork and everything. And, but when he came back in time for the study, he weighed 30 pounds less. And I said to him, I, we must have made a mistake. You know, this says that you weigh one 90 not 160 uh, pounds and he said no no I'm a type 1 diabetic I stopped taking my insulin and oh. and I, I so I said well okay go see your doctor right now <laughs> because that's not an okay <laughs> way to lose body weight you know you're I don't even know what your blood glucose is right now uh, but so obviously he wasn't part of the study but what it illustrated to me was um, he didn't even have as Jorn pointed out that background level of insulin right the minimal like anti-catabolic sort of presence of insulin and that was one of the things that i took away from that is the, is that insulin on some level must be anti-catabolic because this this guy melted i mean i he was he had just melted and that's sort of it, I, I guess i'm just saying this it sort of reinforces what you said Jorn, about he didn't, uh, being type 1 diabetic, he doesn't even have that background single yeah. digit, if you will, a, amount of insulin. And, and that's not going to be relevant. You can't extrapolate that to healthy bodybuilders, right, who aren't 
um, type one diabetics. But um, yeah, I don't know. To me, that showed me that it, it the presence of it, at least in background concentrations, fasting concentrations, right? Healthy people always have at least some. Um, and without that, I think catabolism becomes a big problem. But again, we have to be careful extrapolating, right? Because a lot of this is uh, looking at other populations. So, Yeah, we often uh, describe the role of insulin as permissive, but not stimulatory. So you definitely need some of it, but more than that is not going to do anything extra. Cool. Uh, last question when we wrap up here. So from a practical standpoint, what did, what does your day look like with uh, protein consumption? Because I'm always interested in, you know, obviously you've done a bunch of studies. You've got probably a bunch more that are in the works that are not published yet. But I'm just curious in a more of a perfect world, right? So kind of pretend you're not in the lab all day. Um, how would you set up your protein intake on a training day? Well, in, in the perfect world, there, there are a few variables that, that are important. Um, probably the most important variable is your total protein intake. But again, if you want to optimize things, you, you're going to look at a per meal protein uh, intake. And uh, recently, um, a study found that 40 grams of protein for the first time uh, was significantly better than 20 grams of protein. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because uh, multiple studies have shown previously that you only need uh, 20 grams. Um, it may depend on the type of exercise that you uh, do, how much protein you need. But regardless, uh, all studies so far have, whether it was significant or not, all studies so far have found that 40 grams of protein is approximately 10 to 20% better than 20 grams of protein. So I would hit at least... 40 grams of protein in each of my meals. And then ideally, um, yeah, this is probably controversial, but you, ideally you want to have whey protein and that's theoretically even better than a meal. So often it's said in, in the field that real food is what it's all about, um, but at least in, a, in isolation at that moment, um, whey protein has the specific properties that are most anabolic because it has a very high essential amino acid content and especially the leucine that we talked about and it's rapidly digested um, and um, yeah, basically the combination of those two results in a very fast leucine peak in the body and that seems to be the main trigger of muscle protein synthesis and um, there's also one study has been done in which um, different uh, protein distribution patterns have been studied, and they found that eating approximately every 30 hours, uh, <laughs> that would be a little bit little, every cool. three hours was <laughs> the most anabolic uh, uh, compared to dividing the same amount of protein in more frequent but then smaller amounts or less frequent but then bigger amounts. So if I combine those two studies, I would hit uh, 40 grams of whey protein every three hours. So that's quite a bit. Um, and then prior to sleep, I would eat uh, a larger protein meal, um, probably uh, uh, at least 40 grams of protein. And I probably would choose like a meat that's a little bit slower digested than uh, uh uh, than whey protein, but will sustain uh, 
elevated amino acid levels throughout the whole night. And because it's uh, a meat and not a casein drink uh, like uh, Lani does, uh, hopefully I can sleep the whole night and I don't have to wake up and pee. Um, what, what's really interesting is that uh, on an acute basis, so in a single meal, uh, the addition of carbohydrates or fats has no impact on muscle protein synthesis rates. So hmm. theoretically in a day, you only need protein and you will still have maximal muscle protein synthesis rates. Now, of course, you know in practice that's not going to work because after just uh, uh, three days of uh, being in an energy deficit, muscle protein synthesis rates will go down. So you absolutely need to uh, be in energy balance to uh, maximize muscle protein synthesis rates. Um, but in an isolated uh, meal, it doesn't matter. So you can... Um, Protein, you probably want to distribute it optimally throughout the day, every three hours. But your other macronutrients, uh, how you divide those, doesn't really seem to matter a whole lot. Now, uh, one alternative to the to the 40 grams of whey protein is to eat uh, a complete meal because um, they still will have other micronutrients that you need in the long run. Um, and then add some supplemental whey protein or add some supplemental leucine to still get that very high leucine peak at every meal, but also fix your uh, micronutrient content. So ideally 40 grams of protein every three hours uh, and try to get at least some of that protein from a rapidly digesting protein source to peak leucine levels and uh, prior to sleep a little bit larger meal of a minimum of 40 grams of a slower digesting protein. Cool. Oh, thank you. That's super useful. Um, where can the listeners find more information about you? Um, I'm uh, available on most uh, social media, either uh, as my name, Jorn Trommel, which uh, probably none of the non-Dutch listeners can remember. So uh, you can also <laughs> find me as Nutrition Tactics. Awesome. And, well, thank you very much. And if you're really bored, you can also find me on PubMed, but uh, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend that one. <laughs> Some of us will. <laughs> You'd be surprised if you will track you down there, I'm sure. Right. No, it's much oh, appreciated. Oh, all my research is on sleep, so probably people will fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great practical stuff. Much appreciated. Okay, everyone, we are out of time. So uh, thanks again to Jorn. Uh, thanks, Dr. Nelson. And we'll catch yeah, up thanks, with guys. Yeah, everyone next week. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, 
things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.